I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Neuroscientists hope that balancing neurochemicals could cure mental illness. Is there a role for talking therapy? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Telling your story to a caring listener who can help you interpret the key events of your life, it can be an important tool for healing. Dr. Robert Waldinger is a psychiatrist, Zen master, and meditation instructor. He's also co-author of the book, The Good Life. What has his research taught him about achieving happiness? Nowadays, most people with psychological conditions get prescriptions. Why don't insurance companies cover talk therapy more often? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, medication, psychotherapy, and mental health. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, a new meta-analysis of data suggests that even modest alcohol consumption can raise blood pressure a little bit. The investigators reviewed the results of seven studies involving more than 19,000 participants. The volunteers were from Japan, Korea, and the United States, and the median follow-up was over five years. Consuming roughly one drink a day raised systolic blood pressure a little over one point. Those who consumed nearly four drinks daily had almost five points higher blood pressure compared to teetotalers. There were anomalies, however. Women and North Americans who consumed four drinks daily actually had slightly lower diastolic blood pressure at follow-up. The authors call for further research to assess the impact of specific types of alcoholic beverages as well as the effect on women. When we don't use our muscles, they lose strength quickly. That's especially true for older individuals whose muscles take longer to recover from injury or disuse. Metformin, the most widely prescribed diabetes drug in the world, may have an unexpected benefit for older people undergoing rehabilitation. Researchers conducted a placebo-controlled trial among 20 healthy men and women over 60 years old. After two weeks of a run-in trial, they took five days of bed rest as if they had been injured or undergone surgery. Following that, they phased off their treatment over the next week. Those taking metformin had less muscle atrophy and lower levels of inflammatory compounds in their bloodstreams. Moreover, they had fewer markers of aging in their muscle fibers and less collagen was deposited in the muscles during inactivity. People in the metformin group had a healthier biochemical profile in their muscles during recovery. The author of this study notes, quote, metformin is cheap, effective, and quite safe. So it's exciting to see that we can use it to accelerate recovery for older individuals. According to a new study from the UK, vegetarians may be at greater risk for hip fracture compared to carnivores. In the past, researchers have noted that vegetarian women are more likely to break their hips, but there's been little evidence for men. The new study involved more than 400,000 biobank participants. They were categorized as meat eaters, pescatarians, or vegetarians. The investigators followed these volunteers for 10 years and analyzed data on 3,500 cases of hip fracture. 
The vegetarians had a 50% greater relative risk for broken hips, but the absolute risk was low. The researchers estimate that six and a half meat eaters, seven pescatarians, and nine and a half vegetarians per thousand people would suffer a fracture over 10 years. The completion of two studies was announced this week, Surmount 3 and Surmount 4. The Eli Lilly Company announced outcomes for its diabetes drug Monjaro, repurposed for weight loss. The active ingredient, terzepatide, is similar to the popular diabetes and weight loss drug semaglutide, which is sold as both Otsempic and Wegovy. According to the company, terzepatide was even more effective than semaglutide in helping people lose weight. Their surmount clinical trials lasted on average 84 weeks. Patients receiving terzepatide lost over 25% of their body weight. Side effects of Manjaro and Otsempic are similar. They include stomach ache, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, and vomiting. More serious complications, such as pancreatitis, gallbladder disease, or thyroid cancer, are rare but worrisome. The FDA recently approved two drugs to slow cognitive decline in people with Alzheimer's disease. A study from Spain published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition has shown that older people consuming nuts frequently have less deterioration of cognitive performance than those who rarely eat them. The two-year study included more than 6,000 volunteers between 55 and 75 years old. In this observational study, people reported whether they ate less than one weekly serving of nuts or more, up to seven or more servings a week. Those who ate nuts most often had the smallest decline in cognition. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. A few months ago, we spoke with Dr. Robert Waldinger about his book, The Good Life. In it, he described a long-running study about the factors that contribute to happiness and a meaningful life. Over more than 80 years, Harvard scientists tracked both Harvard undergraduates and underprivileged boys from the Boston area. They wanted to know what happened as these young men aged. What gave their lives meaning? Relationships were key. We were so intrigued by Dr. Waldinger's background as a Zen master, meditation expert, and psychiatrist that we wanted to know more about how the study affected him and how he uses psychodynamic therapy. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. He's the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Robert Waldinger. I'm so glad to be here. Dr. Waldinger, we recently talked to you about your book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. And I'm just wondering, were you prepared for the extraordinary reaction, the interest, the excitement about this book 
or did that come as a bit of a surprise to you? It did come as a surprise. And, and when I gave a TED talk um, about the study in 2015, it came as a total shock that the talk went viral. I think what's been so wonderful is that people are wanting to hear about how relationships really matter in our lives. But it's been quite a surprise because sometimes I sit and I think, gee, this stuff is something my grandmother would have said. So all I'm doing <laughs> is telling you about the science that backs it up. Well, I imagine you've gotten quite a range of responses. Which one was most unexpected? <laughs> I have a friend who's a really cynical media person. Now, I realize those don't exist very often, but she's a very <laughs> cynical media person. And she's skeptical and she doesn't like most of what she reads. And she called me up and she said, I just finished your book. And as soon as I put it down, I called up my friend, Rachel, and I said, Rachel, we love each other. We have such a great time together. We have to see each other more often. That was the best response I could have had from anybody. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Waltinger, you are a professor of psychiatry at Harvard. You've had a background in psychoanalysis. You are also a Zen master, and you teach meditation all around the world. I mean, this is an incredible combination of skills. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your journey, please? Well, I used to think they were all skills that didn't relate to each other. And actually, I kept my Zen life kind of quiet from my academic colleagues. And then I realized, you know, it's all about studying human life and the human condition. You know, whether I'm studying people through my research or working with patients in psychotherapy or sitting on a cushion and watching my own messy mind. And so really, it's, it's been a journey of pursuing my fascination with life and with all the different ways that people go through human life. I, I absolutely love that process of understanding more and more deeply the human condition. Joe just mentioned that um, you do have a background in uh, psychotherapy, and that has kind of fallen out of favor in the 21st century. Can you tell us how you got interested in talk therapy in general and psychotherapy in particular? My own interest came from medical school, where I watched really good therapists interview people and talk with people about the things that were their deepest concerns. And it was so interesting, both what people told us about their lives, but also then how these therapists could listen and listen beneath the surface and understand somebody's deepest concerns, then reflect it back to them so that someone felt understood, sometimes for the first time. What I realized is that most of us want to be seen for who we really are, and that one of the processes of psychotherapy that's so healing is to work with somebody who you feel gets you, who you feel actually sees you. And many times, people have kept themselves hidden from others for decades. So what I found was this was the most compelling thing that I found in medicine. 
And gradually, I began to realize that that's what I wanted to pursue for my clinical specialty. Dr. Waldinger, I think that when most people think about psychoanalysis, or even sometimes just quote-unquote psychotherapy, they, they consider it, you know, if they consider it at all, you know, they think, oh, Freud. They think his famous couch. They think... Well, that's for rich people. It, it's for people who have, you know, minor psychological problems. They're self-indulgent. You know, what, what really works today? Pharmaceuticals. And insurance companies love pharmaceuticals because they don't have to pay for regular talk therapy. Is there a role for psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy in the 21st century? <laughs> well, you've just given us a beautiful catalog of the major myths about psychotherapy. And yes, there's, of course, a role for this. Most people want someone to talk to about their lives. And in fact, even my friends who are psychopharmacologists, when you ask them, what do you do for most of the 20 or 30 minute visit with your patient? They say, I do psychotherapy. We talk about their life and what's going on in, in their lives. So there's, there's a myth that medication will do everything we need. Medication does a lot. And I'm so thankful that I have medication to use as a practitioner in my own work as a psychiatrist. But medication is quite limited, just like psychotherapy can't do everything. Many times people benefit from having both medication and psychotherapy. But, you know, when we think about Freud, we think, oh, that's so old school. Well, actually, it turns out Freud was right about a whole lot of things. He was also wrong about a lot of things. And Freud himself threw out his ideas that he realized were not really very helpful or accurate. He, he would have continued to throw out more of his own ideas if he had continued to practice to this day. Um, but that doesn't mean we want to throw out all of Freud. Ideas about um, things that are out of our awareness, that are unconscious, ways that we defend ourselves to try to ease our own anxiety and our fears, ways that we accidentally assume things about other people because they're like people we knew in the past, those are concepts that are happening, are, are, are relevant to everything that's happening all day long. So that said, this kind of therapy is incredibly useful for many people with many different kinds of problems. Well, I, I wonder if there is kind of a, a mythology that, okay, psychotherapy, yeah, it works if you're anxious. It, it works if maybe you have some obsessive compulsive disorder, but, but really serious mental illness, you know, depression or bipolar disease or, or maybe even schizophrenia. Now, those you can't talk them out. You you got you got to take powerful antipsychotic medications or antidepressants. Is there a role for psychotherapy for serious mental illness? There is absolutely a role for 
psychotherapy and serious mental illness. Um, you are right in what you say that that psychotherapy doesn't cure particular symptoms like psychosis, right? Like the hallucinations and delusional beliefs of schizophrenia. Absolutely. And we don't use psychotherapy for that purpose. We use psychotherapy in serious mental illness for different purposes, like support. So what they find, for example, is that people with schizophrenia, people with severe bipolar disorder do far better. They're hospitalized less often if they see a therapist regularly, a therapist who cares about them, who knows about their life, who can see when things are starting to get worse and when they need, for example, an adjustment to their medication, so that the combination of medication and psychotherapy for the most serious mental illnesses, that combination has been shown to work better than medication alone or than psychotherapy alone. But then, you know, to your point about depression, depression is the second most common illness in the world. And what we find is that much depression responds to psychotherapy alone, certainly to psychotherapy plus medication in many cases. So we would never want to have medication as the only tool we use in the treatment of depression or anxiety for that matter. You're listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger. Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation and co-author with Mark Schultz of the book The Good Life. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents, and as a Zen master, he teaches meditation. After the break, we'll find out how modern-day psychiatrists learn to value talk therapy and medications. What's the difference between psychodynamic therapy and classic psychoanalysis? Why is the unconscious mind so powerful? Can you use talk therapy to help someone with serious mental illness? Why don't insurance companies embrace talk therapy as enthusiastically as pharmacotherapy? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. Today, the topic is mental health. Why is talk therapy so valuable 
And why don't some insurance companies recognize its worth? We're talking with Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents, and he's the co-author with Mark Schultz of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Dr. Waldinger, I got my start in research in a neuropharmacology laboratory uh, near Princeton, New Jersey at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute. And my mentors pretty much convinced me that uh, all mental problems could be reduced to neurochemistry, that if we just got the right balance of pharmaceuticals, if we just corrected the imbalance in serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine, boy, we could cure everything. And boy, were we wrong. What, what happened? Well, what happened was what we always do. We overpromise. We think, now we've finally found the cure, right? That's what they thought when Freud started publishing about psychoanalytic concepts. And when people started doing psychoanalysis, they said, this is it. We've got the, we've got the cure for everything. Um, we keep doing that. We've been overpromising AI now uh, as the, the answer to the mental health crisis. This is what we do. We get our hopes up and then we realize, gee, this is helpful. It's partially true, but it doesn't fix everything. So you were just experiencing what I experienced as a young psychoanalyst, just in another direction. Well, Dr. Waldinger, you have pointed out that when you are treating patients, you find that the combination of drug therapy and talk therapy is better than either one alone. How do you train modern-day psychiatrists, because that is part of your job, to value both the talk therapy and the medications? Well, we talk about the idea that one remedy just isn't going to be sufficient, that occasionally it will be. So for some people, medication alone is all they need. For some people, psychotherapy alone is all they need. For many people, it's combinations, it's trial and error, but eventually we get to a good place where they are feeling so much better. And so what I talk with them about is the idea of having a lot of tools in their mental health toolbox, that that's what we want to give them. We want to give them the ability to use different forms of psychotherapy and different kinds of medication, and that they don't have to be an expert in all the forms of therapy and medication. They just have to know about some that they themselves can use, and they, know they need to know how to refer to other people who are experts in other things. So for example, I'm not an expert in cognitive behavior therapy, but that's a really useful form of therapy. So I have good colleagues who know how to do that. And thank goodness they're out there for me to refer to. Similarly, with really complicated psychopharmacology, that's not my specialty. Psychotherapy is more my specialty. And so I have these good colleagues who I can call on to help. And so one of the greatest relieving teachings I can give to young psychiatrists is you don't have to master all of it. You just have to know when it's needed 
and how to get people the help that they need. Now, I understand that you are a psychodynamic therapist. Can, can you explain how that might differ from psychoanalysis or just quote unquote psychotherapy? Sure. Psychodynamic therapy uses the principles of psychoanalysis. Basically, the idea that, that we are driven by many things that are outside of our awareness, that are unconscious, that we have these habitual coping mechanisms that we can often learn more about and improve, many of those kinds of concepts. But psychoanalysis is a very powerful form of treatment that relies on four or five times a week treatment where the person lies on a couch, doesn't look at the therapist. And that's very helpful for very specific problems. But most of the problems that psychoanalytic therapy is helpful for can be helped in once a week therapy, twice a week therapy, sometimes even less frequent psychotherapy. So what I tend to do is therapy where the patient is sitting up, looking at me and I'm looking at them. It is somewhat more interactive. And it happens once a week, twice a week, maybe once or twice a month. And what are the sorts of differences that would uh, occur in the kinds of questions and answers that would transpire during such a session? Well, in psychoanalysis, the psychoanalyst is quieter for longer in order to allow the patient to, to essentially develop a story about the analyst. The less I know about someone, the more stories I make up. And we deliberately cultivate that and encourage that in psychoanalysis because then someone gets to look at, oh, this is how I tend to make up stories about an older man or a younger woman or whoever the therapist might be the analyst. And we do that in uh, sitting up once a week psychotherapy as well. It's called transference, where, we where I encourage someone to imagine things about me because it can be very helpful in showing them what they may tend to do in other parts of their lives with other people in their lives. For example, somebody comes in and says to me, you know, I've had a series of jobs and I never get along with my bosses. They're all jerks. And so we find out that the bosses happen to be all men, somewhat older, that those men often remind the patient of their father. And then sure enough, over time, I can come to seem like one of those dominating jerks to the patient. And if we have a strong enough connection and alliance, the patient can begin to say, wait a minute, Maybe you're not such a jerk. Maybe you're not so much like my father. And maybe I'm doing this elsewhere in my life. Maybe that could get better. Similarly, I help people realize that they've been picking all the wrong romantic partners. Uh, that's a common thing in therapy. That actually happened for me when I was a young man. <laughs> I went to therapy first because I had had several relationships that weren't working out. And what I came to understand in the therapy was that I was choosing the kind of person who formed a relationship with me where we drove each other crazy and it didn't work out. And it helped me to realize that, oh no, I actually would like to start dating different kinds of people. 
So these are just some of the examples of what a therapy can do that can be life-changing. Dr. Waldinger, it seems to me that our unconscious mind is something that is often, it's just beyond our, our capability of, of accessing and that a psychoanalysis process can allow us to get in touch with that. And I apologize to our listeners for repeating this story because I have shared it so many times, but um, I had polio when I was young. Uh, two, three years of age. Mm. And I was locked in a, in a polio ward where I couldn't see my parents for many weeks. And I was surrounded by aliens, uh, right. healthcare professionals in, in white suits and masks. And, um, and it was painful because I was in traction. And as I got older and had to go back into the hospital for various things, I would always ask, is it going to hurt? Is it going to hurt? Yeah. And everybody always said no. No, 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 this won't hurt the nurses and the doctors. And it always hurt. Mm. They always lied to me. Yeah. And um, throughout my growing up period, I suppressed those memories completely. They were gone. I just, I just made them go away. I had nightmares, but I couldn't remember being in the hospital when I was young. Mm. And uh, I was not a very trusting person mm. because... I don't know. My unconscious mind said that people will lie to you. You can't, you can't believe what they're going to say. Right. And it took until I was in my 40s or 50s to recapture those painful childhood memories. And then I realized, oh, oh, yeah, I could be more trusting. And ever since then, it's been a much better relationship with all kinds of people in my life, including my family. Absolutely. And we... Uh, now have the ability to say, you know, you can trust me about this. And it reminds him that he, he could. So tell us why the unconscious mind is so powerful and important. Well, your story is so typical. And why wouldn't you be mistrustful? You know, we come to expect the world to be a certain way based on our early experiences with family, with traumatic experiences like being hospitalized, like being mistreated by people we're supposed to be able to trust. And so there, there's a, a kind of imprinting that happens, uh, we find, and that people then end up replaying situations. So you were almost certainly going to look for signs that you couldn't trust people. And of course, some of those times you were right. There are people in the world we can't trust. But what, oh, yeah. <laughs> what happened was that your antenna were so, so attuned to who you couldn't trust that you weren't able to see, oh, wait, there are these people who I can trust. And one of the things that psychotherapy can help us do is uncover these transferences, these stereotyping patterns that we have where we, we paint everybody with the same brush. You see, nobody's trustworthy. And, and because that was really, I'm sure, impairing your life as an adult. And so you, Absolutely. Be yeah. So you began then to be able to say, oh, okay, I'm learning to trust my judgment better. It's not that I can trust everybody. It's that I can learn that I have good judgment. I can see the signs of who's trustworthy and who's not. Um, similarly, when I was a young man, I could say, you know, I can see the signs of which people 
which romantic partners are going to drive me crazy and which won't. They won't all drive me crazy. And now I've been happily married for 37 years, thank goodness. And, <laughs> you know, so these things. So what we find is that psychotherapy can really help us do it differently. It can help us see the world differently and then have different kinds of relationships based on that those new perceptions. I wonder if you can tell us about using talk therapy to help someone who does have a serious mental illness. Yes, because what talk therapy can do is help somebody see where they're vulnerable. So if I have a serious mental illness, I've got certain vulnerabilities. That doesn't mean I'm globally impaired. It might mean, for example, if I'm prone to manic episodes, there are certain signs that I can learn to recognize them when I'm losing my good judgment, when my energy is getting to be too high, when I'm likely to do things that I regret. Um, a therapist can help me learn that and can help me see the warning signs, can help me recruit my friends and my family to notice, okay, when I call you at three in the morning, that's a warning sign that I need help, Right. Even if I call you and I'm all excited about a new idea I have, right? So there are certain ways that therapy can help people learn about the warning signs that, that tell us when we need help, often that we can't see ourselves. Um, it can be a very powerful assist to keep us functioning. So actually, people with serious mental illness Many of them, most of them are out there in the world living their lives, living perfectly great lives um, because they've got the help that they need. They know the warning signs. They get, they get help when those warning signs start to appear. So that's an example. Now, Dr. Waldinger, what you have been describing seems to me so intuitive, so valuable. And yet insurance companies they're not as enthusiastic about talk therapy as they are about pharmacotherapy. It's like, hey, you could be taking fluoxetine, Prozac, at 10 or $15 a month. That'll solve the problem. Don't worry. Just, just go with the flow. And the doctor may say, well, I can get that patient in and out of my office pretty fast. I could just write a script for, for fluoxetine or a citalopram or fill in the blank. How do we get our mental health care system to embrace talk therapy and to actually recognize that it can be an incredibly important addition to pharmacotherapy? That's such an important question. You know, there have been good studies of this. They're called cost offset studies where an insurer has offered one group of their clients access to psychotherapy, extra access, for example, and another group business as usual with their insurance plans. And what they have found is that the people who are given the benefit of more psychotherapy, first of all, don't overuse it. And actually one figure I think was something like only 4% of clients actually use psychotherapy. This was a study of thousands of people. But that what, what happened was that the people who used psychotherapy 
were less likely to go to medical doctors for medical illness. They were less likely to have unnecessary surgeries and hospitalizations, which are way more expensive than psychotherapy. And so these are called cost offset studies, that what you find is that if people are given access to psychotherapy and they use it, their savings in medical costs far outweigh the cost of the therapy itself. The problem is that it's difficult to do these studies. They take a long time. The studies take years to demonstrate the cost effectiveness. And that is often difficult in, for example, the area of public policy. Because, you know, politicians want to be able to demonstrate that you get savings within six months or 12 months or certainly within an election cycle. Right. Right. So, right. So when uh, Hillary Clinton had a task force on uh, psychotherapy and Tipper Gore led a task force on mental health care, they tried to get legislation through that would uh, essentially incorporate mandate benefits for psychotherapy in insurance policies. And it was it wasn't able to happen because of this difficulty in in demonstrating these benefits within the time frame that was needed for politicians. You are listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. He's also the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. After the break, we'll find out how psychotherapy can be a life-changing experience. Has becoming a Zen master changed the way Dr. Waldinger treats his patients? Being kind can help calm a tense situation. Shouldn't we do that more often? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. With the proven power of cocoflavanols, Cocovia supplements support blood flow from head to toe. This National Physical Fitness and Sports Month Give your heart and brain 100% and support a healthy you with the most proven flavanol bioactive. Get 20% off your Cocovia order from May 8th through May 22nd using the discount code FITNESSPOD at Cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a special blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. 
It supports five areas of brain performance, all in one capsule. More information available at cocovia.com. Everyone has a story that can help give their life meaning. Telling your story to someone who can help you make sense of it can be a powerful tool for healing. Our guest is just such a listener. Dr. Robert Waldinger is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the current director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation and directs the psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. His book is The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Dr. Waldinger, I heard when we first came to, to Durham, North Carolina, that the head of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine, I think his name was Dr. Eugene Stead, he required all the chief residents at Duke to undergo psychoanalysis with a renowned psychoanalytic therapist at the time. And I was always puzzled, like, why would he do that? But... When we would encounter these people, as we did over the ensuing years, you know, we'd meet some doctor and he'd say, oh, yeah, I was a chief resident at Duke. And we'd say, well, uh, what about that psychoanalysis? And they'd say, that was so life-changing. It was the most important thing that ever happened mm, to me in my yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you help us understand why that was so important? Well, I can. What happens is that it can seem scary to go talk to a therapist about your life. And to look inside, right? But then what happens is, first of all, it's mostly not scary at all. It's mostly relieving. And you get to learn about yourself. And really, for me, my psychoanalytic experience and psychotherapy experience before that was essentially a process of greater and greater self-acceptance. So things I was ashamed of, things I thought I was totally an outlier about and weird and defective, all of that shifted. And I really began to be more self-accepting. What happens then is if you're more self-accepting, you're much less defensive out there in the world. You're much kinder to people. You're much less thin-skinned and you're much more accepting of other people. And so that's what I think people were talking about when they said, oh my gosh, this has been so life-changing. It certainly has been for me. Dr. Weldinger, you are, in addition to being a doctor and a psychiatrist, you are also a Zen master. Were you a practicing therapist before you became a Zen master? And has it changed the way you treat your patients? Yes and yes. I was definitely a, a therapist long before I started practicing Zen and never expected to practice Zen, let alone become a Zen master. I stumbled into a Zen group almost 20 years ago, like right near my house, and began studying with a wonderful teacher. Um, but what it has done is infused my practice, my work with people in psychotherapy, with a kind of existential flavor. And what I mean by that is that perspective that Zen gives me about life being short and life being really precious and 
being so interconnected with other people. So when people now talk to me about what they're worried about or what they're upset about, I will often find myself bringing in a longer term, big picture perspective, like 50 years from now, is this going to be important? Even one year from now, are you, what are you going to look back on and how are you going to want to see yourself at this moment? How are you going to want to see that you behaved? How are you going to want to see that you dealt with these people who right now you're so angry at? And by helping people take this longer view and this bigger view of their own lives, it really begins to add a new dimension to what can sometimes feel like a locked-in, narrow, stressful problem. That seems so important today, (laughs) maybe more than any time in recent memory. People seem so angry at one another at the world around them, at politicians, about people in authority. And the idea of getting out of the moment and putting it into some kind of perspective, wow, what what a valuable insight you're offering. Well, it's also, as you say, so important in this moment of division, because if you think about these divisions are essentially fleeting, most of them. The politicians who want to divide us, they're fleeting. We're all going to disappear. Those people who are getting us to be so angry at each other and so divided, they're not going to be on the stage for very long. None of us is going to be on the stage for very long. The things that abide are these kind of eternal values about kindness and human connection. And so if we can keep reminding each other of that, and of our humanity, it, it really defuses some of the acrimony and the uh, volatility that's swirling around us right now. Well, you know, this just reminds me of your research project and your book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. And I came away after reading your book and talking with you the last time with one key word, relationships, and also another word, love. And it seems like that's what we're talking about. It is. It is what we're talking about. Um, I I am going to give you a, a quote that's famously attributed to the Buddha. He said, hate never quelled hatred, only love quells hatred. And when I remind myself of that, when I'm like all upset about something, it really brings me back to, oh yeah, if I'm actually kind to someone, even when they're making me angry, everything comes down almost immediately. And and that seems to be the sort of cornerstone of what we find in our study of relationships, that the people who were kind and caring and nurturing and cultivated those kinds of relationships stayed happier to be sure, but they also stayed healthier and they actually lived longer. Well, an approach like that, which, you know, as you say, everything calms down quickly, it's effective. And therefore, why wouldn't we all do it all the time? But we don't. Well, it feels so satisfying in the moment to get angry and to get vengeance, whatever, you know, it, it, it really does. Unfortunately, our, our minds and bodies are constructed such that it can feel really great to let somebody have it 
you know, verbally or even physically. The problem is it feels bad down the road. And we look back and say, oh, that didn't go well. So I think what we have to do is remind ourselves that, that what may feel satisfying in the moment is not what gets us where we want to go in the long term. And that's why I think talk therapy has so much to offer in, in this disturbed world that we live in. I mean, yes, medications are valuable. Uh, for some people, an antidepressant is like lifting a veil. And for other people, the ability to, you know, deal with their bipolar condition with a medication can, can be extraordinarily beneficial. But I do think that talk therapy has been undervalued, uh, in the world of pharmacotherapy. And I just like to ask you the question of, you know, talk therapy comes in so many different varieties and flavors, as you pointed out, there, there's cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, you practice psychodynamic analysis. Can you help us better understand how to match up the right kind of talking therapy with the right person and then how that person can find the therapist that will be best for him or her? Boy, I wish there were a key that would allow you to do that from the start to find the right type of therapy and the right therapist, it involves some trial and error. So what I would say is go to a good diagnostician, a good person who's familiar with a lot of different forms of treatment, talk with them, take their recommendations, and then see what feels helpful. So if you're looking for a psychotherapist, and this may be hard in our current mental health climate, but it, it ideally what you would do is go talk to more than one person and see what feels good. Talk to people who are well-trained. And then once you get to people who are well-trained, see who feels like a person you can talk to more and more and confide in because often it's a match. It's almost like dating. Um, you want to find the person who really... Uh, gets you and resonates with you. Similarly, with medication, there's a lot of trial and error. You try one medication and often it doesn't work or it gives you a side effect that's unpleasant. That doesn't mean you want to stop. That means you want to try a different medication. That can be hard when you're hurting, when you're exhausted, to keep trying. And so I think the thing I would encourage to your listeners is don't give up. Don't give up on medication. Don't give up on psychotherapy, but keep trying to see what's possible and see which things make it better over time. An influential panel recently issued some new guidelines that recommend screening for everyone between the ages of 19 and 65, basically all American adults, should be screened, they say, for anxiety and depression. Is the current mental health crisis changing the way doctors need to practice medicine? Yes. What we're understanding is that so many of the problems that people bring to their primary care doctors are emotionally based. And the most common mental health conditions are anxiety and depression and also addiction. And so, yes, this kind of screening is essential. Then the challenge for us 
as mental health professionals is to know how do we help people. So if we identify people who are hurting, how do we find them the help they need? And that's a huge challenge right now with a shortage of mental health professionals. We need to train more people. We need to support more of this kind of care. Well, it seems to me that we are in crisis mode. We hear quite frequently when there is a shooting that, you know, it's a mental health problem, but then nobody really wants to fund mental health care and train adequate numbers of therapists. And, you know, all one has to do is go into the center city of any city in this country. And there are a lot of homeless people and a lot of them have mental illness. Um, It's been estimated that I think the the CDC says that one in five U.S. adults have mental illness at some point. Exactly. And our prisons are overwhelmed. So if we were to put you in charge, if we (laughs) said, okay, Dr. Waldinger, we're going to give you an unlimited budget to help solve the mental health crisis in America, what would be some of the things that you'd want to do? I would train more people. And I would change the reimbursement system so that more people can be supported for doing this kind of work, uh, mental health care. Um, I would also fund the development of more interventions that reach more and more people so that we ease some of the disparities. You know, we know that people who have more resources are the ones who are likely to get the care that they need. Um, but we need to be able to reach people who are more marginalized, people without financial resources. And there are a lot of ways to do that with group interventions. There are also AI bots that can help. We have to be really careful and we have to learn more about how to do that. But there are chat bots that can screen for mental health problems that help, that can help connect you to a human healthcare provider who can help. Um, So there are a lot of ways to reach more people. And what I would do is get really busy funding training, funding interventions for larger groups of people, and also developing interventions for marginalized groups, for people of color, for LGBTQ communities, for, you know, for those communities who are underserved. Dr. Waldinger, you have provided us tremendous insights, in part thanks to your wonderful book, The Good Life. And you have also been a mentor for a great many health professionals and psychiatrists as they move forward in their professional lives. What would you like to tell our listeners when it comes to seeking help for mental health issues, whether it's anxiety or whether it's a crisis situation? What What should they be doing over the next months and years? Well, the first step is to talk to someone you trust. You know, one of the things in my training that I was taught is never worry alone. And that applies to all of us, right? So if you feel like, oh God, I'm not feeling well, don't keep it to yourself. Talk to people, not to everybody, but to the people you trust and Know that help is out there and then see what's available. You can talk to a primary care doctor. You can talk to clergy. You may have a trusted minister, rabbi, imam, you know, somebody in your life 
uh, who you can talk to. If you have a professor or a teacher, if you're in school, talk to a trusted teacher. Um, don't do this by yourself. You don't have to do it by yourself. And getting help from other people is the way through this. Um, the other thing is that it won't last. It won't stay this way forever. So even though you you may be having a hard time now, know that it can change and know that there is really good help for this. Actually, much better help for most mental health conditions than we have for many physical health conditions. So the 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 cause for optimism, if you're suffering from a mental health problem, you have good reason to be optimistic about it getting better and being able to find help. Dr. Robert Weldinger, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. He directs the psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. Dr. Waldinger is also a Zen master who teaches meditation. He is the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements, cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health, made with a concentrated flavanol extract. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,350. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Have you participated in psychotherapy sessions? How did that go? Did it change your way of thinking about the problem you were addressing? We're interested in your story. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter. Get the latest news about important health stories. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.